anyone on the planet Earth could have nailed down specifically why injury occurs, we would be preventing them by now. Welcome back to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. Here we talk about pain, rehab, performance, and education. If you have questions about the nuance that we dive into, please reach out to us. We would love to talk to you about it. Apart from that, we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode, and we hope everyone stays safe and is staying healthy. I am here with Dr. Nick Perugini. Hey, guys. And we're going to have a conversation here today about movement technique, form, um, and how that impacts maybe our clinical decision-making or our coaching with athletes and with patients surrounding pain, surrounding performance, um, and what the kind of nuance of the conversation needs to be. Um, and so to start the conversation, I think it's important that we lay the foundation for where the thought process has been in, in the past and kind of how to blend that with a, a better, more modern understanding of pain and of this, this kind of conversation. Right. So um, for those of you who kind of don't know the framework here, in the past, the, the healthcare system has been based on this Cartesian you know, model of pain, of movement and of dysfunction, where there was a thought you know, in the 14, 1500s, that when you experienced pain in your body, it's because negative spirits were flying up these narrow tubes in your body up to your brain and telling it that, you know, you were having these sensations, something harmful was going on here. And that's kind of how we built this medical system to treat pain as this input from your body, um, to treat it as a, a direct like, hey, I get cut on my leg or I twist my ankle and some damage has occurred and that's kind of sent these signals up to my brain and caused pain and, and I'm sensing this painful stimulus. Um, that has you know, led folks to treat pain in various different ways uh, as a very one-to-one -one model of I see a problem and I fix it. Over time and as kind of the research has come out and a better understanding of things have, have come out, we've begun to develop a, a better understanding of what pain is mm -hmm. and seeing it more as the culmination of some of those sensory inputs with other kind of contextual factors so for example you know you sprain your ankle walking up the church steps that's a painful experience potentially versus you know you sprain your ankle while you're walking on train tracks and there's an oncoming train coming the painful experience there is going to be very different based on the context in which it happens because your brain is going to devote a certain level of threat or a level of attention mm -hmm. to that stimulus that you're receiving from your body. Um, and that'll kind of influence a little bit of the pain that you experience in that moment or in that context. Um, this has evolved the conversation around technique because following kind of this uh, Cartesian model with pain, technique was seen as something that was very related to pain and uh, and risk of pain in that you know 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was thought that form and technique on certain movements had to be very rigid and had to be very precise in order to right. you know load the body in a way that kept it safe. Um, 
now that's kind of evolved to some degree where maybe we recognize a little bit more flexibility or a little bit more variation in, in our options to move. Um, but as the pendulum always swings, that nuance makes it more difficult to then establish how much should mm-hmm. we care about technique? How much should we care about movement? And it's maybe led a, a you know a group of folks to dismiss technique or dismiss form as an unimportant variable. And we're here to kind of bring us back to earth a little bit and try to blend these concepts of, you know, a biopsychosocial approach to pain and a modern understanding of maybe the lack of relationship to true structural damage or tissue damage, but then also maybe not swinging so far to the extent that we don't coach anymore and right. we don't, you know, we don't educate folks on, you know, what their movement options are or showing them how to move in these different patterns. Right. So, Nick, obviously, I just introduced a lot yeah. from a from a historical it's a great standpoint. Great unpacking, Max. It's a really, really good recap there. <laughs> um, what are your initial thoughts on the subject? Yeah, maybe just as I introduced kind of that that foundation. Yeah, it's gonna be tough to follow that, Max. But um, you know, I'll see what I can do here. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll just kind of start by saying, you know, it, it, in my kind of experiences coming again from someone who started, you know, personal training, started in the strength conditioning area, started in CrossFit, where you know, technique was everything, right? It was everyone's got to move the same way, everyone's got to achieve these positions, and with the thought that our people moving this way was going to prevent them from experiencing pain, experiencing injury. Turns out people still got hurt, right? And, you know, this, this idea of technique, again, it doesn't mean that the, the technique led to any type of pain or issue, but it started getting me to think about this, this idea of preparedness, right? Or this idea of load, you know, inverse capacity where, you know, injury and pain might not necessarily be directly related to technique, but it might be more related to someone's readiness or preparedness, right, or capacity to take on stress in a certain position, right? So that that kind of concept or, or paradigm kind of allowed me to, I think, be less strict, right, or um, so specific or particular about technique and more so about getting people moving, right? And getting people to build capacity, right? And 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 shifting my model from having a very specific technique for my indiv- for my clients or patients to more of the idea of having an acceptable range of technique where we're still going to teach the foundational movement patterns, right? Still want everyone to be able to do a hip hinge and get movement from their hips instead of their lumbar spine when hinging. Right, still want people to be able to have their knees come forward over their toes, right? Maintaining a, a, a neutral spine. For those on audio, I'm putting uh, air quotes on with my fingers. A neutral spine position with uh, throughout my spine while squatting. We still want those things, but maybe you know, especially initially, it's less important about how specific we're being, and it's more about getting people moving and loaded and. Um, able to accept that load on their tissues on their body right and that's probably the thing when we're talking about you know building resilient you know capable humans that it's probably a little bit more important right than having this very specific technique where we're trying to be perfect yeah and so this this conversation it there's a few points in which it falls apart yeah one point is from an evidence standpoint 
we always have to differentiate between evidence of absence and absence of evidence. So by that, I mean, we don't have any direct evidence that you can load all positions similarly without any difference in risk from one position to the other. The evidence does not exist that one position is more harmful than the other or more beneficial than the other. But that's just because it actually doesn't exist. Right. And so we can't necessarily conclude from the absence of the evidence that the evidence would be absent if it did exist, right? So the the lack of support for some of the ideas doesn't mean that the support wouldn't be there if the studies were done. Right. The studies just haven't been done yet. So unfortunately, then you have to fall back on, you know, applying a foundation of other evidence and of biomechanical and anatomical kind of knowledge to try to fill in the Mm -hmm. gaps. Obviously, there's always a limitation in terms of applying theoretical or hypothetical knowledge to a certain content area, which is why, such as your perspective, you've kind of expanded your understanding of movement and technique Sure, because there's no real reason that you should be rigid. There's no evidence to be rigid, but there's no evidence not to be either. And so you can't just throw everything out of the window Yes, because there may be in five years some studies that come out, randomized clinical control trials, that do show, hey, when you load your your spine on a deadlift in a hyperflex position or a hyperextend position, hey, your load capacity hits a ceiling earlier than if you do it in a neutral position, and we saw injury risks that are higher. That study just hasn't been done because it's very difficult to do. But you have to recognize that it might get done in five years. Right. And for the time being, maybe we will use some, you know, foundational knowledge to make inferences about things that are better or worse. So that's one place where if you're very hard line on using an RCT or a randomized clinical control trial to support everything you do, you are not going to be able to support one technique over the other. And so you think, I don't have to look at it at all. But unfortunately... You shouldn't be doing that if you, you know, truly have everyone's best interest in heart, at heart. You know, you need to try to look in certain directions and look for potential opportunities to help and just not necessarily be so dogmatic that you figured it out on your own. The other place where this conversation then tends to fall apart, if not the evidence component, is the differentiation between pain and performance. And when we look at pain the waters are more muddy if we're trying to connect a certain technique to the presence of pain yeah and i don't think that we can make any hard line statements connecting movement technique to pain and i think that it's important that we tell patients and tell athletes that there is a lack of relationship there because that will instill some confidence that they don't have to move in a particular way in order to be pain-free. We want them to recognize that that relationship doesn't necessarily exist and that they have options Mm -hmm. as long as they're, you know, building capacity Mm -hmm. and loading things progressively. Yeah, it's definitely a mindset shift for our our patients. Yeah, and so I think that that's important. But on the side of performance, Mm -hmm. if my snatch goes from 50 kilos to 150 kilos, 
there's a few physiological adaptations that may have contributed to that increase. Maybe I built more muscle that I've hypertrophy that has capacity for more strength. Now I have neural adaptations mm -hmm. that have allowed me to recruit and synchronize muscle activation, uh, more forcefully and mm -hmm. in a better synchronous way. But then the third component of building strength is better technique is building a more reproducible, more efficient yes. movement that I can go in and I can train the same pattern in the same way on a consistent basis and load that and build strength that's specific to a movement. It's not like my snatch looks different on every rep. So on the performance side, I think a lot of times we do coach through movement because we recognize that that is one component. The technique is one component of better performance. Sure. So when you're thinking of pain versus performance in the context of technique, what is your thought process on the differentiation of those two things? Yeah, I think again, what a what a what a great um, recap there, Max. And when we're talking about you know pain versus performance and and technique, right? It really is, there are going to be a lot of other factors that we have to un unpack first, right? So you know I think the first one is like going to be clients' goals. Like, what do they really want to get back to? Is there a timeline associated with that? Is there urgency? And also the irritability. Like, are they currently training? Are they totally not training a certain movement pattern? Um, with someone experiencing pain and doing technique, if this person wants to train right now, I think we as coaches need to understand how to make changes in movement on the spot to allow someone to continue to move, allow someone to continue to experience fitness adaptations without pain. And, you know, I brought this up the, the other day to you. It's like, you know, what happens when you're experiencing, you know, knee pain right now in the middle of a, of a warm-up set while you're squatting? Well, it doesn't mean we're just going scrap to the, scrap the workout. We're probably going to make some some little bit of a change in our foot position. Hey, maybe I'm even going to use a box for the day. Or maybe I'm going to think about something a little bit different in my, in my bracing mechanics or in my proximal mechanics, right? So when we're talking about technique, you know, and, and, and I'm experiencing some pain while I'm while I'm lifting, you know, being able to do those things right now or addressing my technique can make an instant change to allow me to continue to train. Does that mean my technique was good or bad? No, it was different, right? It was a different movement solution, right? Or a different movement option that we were able to use to continue to train. When we're talking about performance standpoint, this idea of a ceiling, Right, I think is really important. Right, generally the strength and conditioning, ha uh, you know, culture has generally accepted positions or patterns, right, that we're seeing consistently across the world in powerlifting, right, in Olympic lifting, in track and field, right, and we know that these positions may be more mechanically um, efficient, right, or optimal for performance. So when we have maybe someone who has already has a very efficient or, or powerful snatch pattern, for example, their overhead squat receiving position, and now that that position is painful, we have to problem solve, right? That's where we have to kind of detect because changing technique for that person might actually not be the thing that either they want to do or it, because it's going to result in, a, in a, a severe decrease in output. Yeah. And for that client or that patient right now, that, that's not an option. 
right? So at that point, that's where we have to start thinking about maybe desensitizing and then building capacity in that certain position or range of motion. And again, we want to understand, you know, where where range of motion is coming from, how we can uh, affect other things in that person's system to help decrease potentially stress at that area, or concurrently building capacity in a tissue that maybe is experiencing a load intolerance, so they don't have to totally revamp their technique from a performance standpoint when they are experiencing pain. Yeah. So pain in the moment, again, we're thinking about technique changes to allow someone to continue to train. Um, Understanding that that's not a good or bad technique, it's just a different technique. From a performance standpoint, someone needs to perform and hit these certain positions right now. I want to understand, one, why that position became sensitive in the first place, right? And either understanding how to desensitize that, that painful area or concurrently build up capacity in that tissue to allow them to sustain that technique which has got to that, them to that output from a performance standpoint. Yeah, and I, I like what you said about, you know, so we'll take a concrete example of two people performing the deadlift with low back pain. One may have performed the deadlift, say with a more extended lumbar spine position. Uh, their pelvis is, you know, characteristically yeah, anteriorly more anteriorly yep. tilted. And then someone else also experiencing pain in the opposite boat. Sure. More of a flex position, more of a posteriorly tilted. And for each of these people, their temporary movement solution may be the exact opposite A little bit different, yes. Right? Kind of bringing the extended person more flexed, bringing the flex person more extended. And that doesn't mean that either one was bad. No. Because for each person, the solution is what the other person's kind of bad position would be. Inherently, it's not the position. Exactly. And and this is, you know, I I love having uh, graphics like spectrums. Right. And so, you know, we have this, this, this spectrum and, you know, that shows us that we need variability, right? And we need to be able to have different options and different solutions. And when we, o- when we only know how to get a movement or, you know, some kind of pattern done in one very, very specific way, right? We become a rigid system. And being able to have that little bit of a bandwidth can be a little bit more protective. Uh, and, and when we think about the health versus performance spectrum, we want to think about, again, Hey, maybe this this technique right now that I'm using, right? I'm very efficient in it, but it's the only technique that I have, right? So maybe it's a very high output, but it's rigid, right? And so it kind of creates a little bit more vulnerability from a health standpoint. And so what you're saying there is, hey, we need to be able to have that bandwidth and ability to have different options to get a job done. Yeah, and I see like some of the cross-training literature as uh, – applicable in this sense when you're thinking of like, hey, I'll take someone who trains X amount of volume running and then I'll cut the running volume by 50% and fill that 50% at a similar RPE, similar intensity with swimming or with cycling. And you see lower injury rates when you introduce that kind of cross training. I think that that same concept is applicable even when you look at the deadlift in your, you know, rigid kind of perfectly greased groove position is like running all of the time and giving you another option even just in the deadlift in terms of yeah. positions 
is like switching from running to biking or switching from running to swimming and spending at least some of your time stressing your body in a in a different way in which maybe you can you know afford a little bit more of a capacity ceiling or your your bucket of stress becomes yeah. bigger yeah. because you have that extra option and i think a lot i think a lot of the the powerlifting community will will say like you know okay like why are like accessory work like why are, why are we even doing it right how is this going to help my deadlift and i think the reality is it's not going to help the deadlift directly right but it, it may create a bigger foundation for you to grow off of right and, and just like you're saying there max you know promoting this little bit of you know variability in training you know maybe maybe helps create just enough buffer for this person to be able to accept the perturbation right to be able to um, be dynamic in their ability to stress different areas of their body so they're not so specific with their training over and over and over again yeah, and the reality is there, I don't think, will ever be a time in human history in which performance isn't at least to some degree inversely correlated with risk. Like That's it. If you always push performance and you're maximizing, you just have to understand that you're accepting a level of risk that is higher than if you push performance a little less which is which is why i love kind of making sure i have a great understanding right when, I, when i'm talking about patients and, and clients a great understanding of where their mindset is at timeline to competition right kind of where what kind of phase in their training are they in right how how is there a lot of urgency you know is this competition or is this training block very meaningful and just understanding you know that performance and training happens in seasons right it happens in phases and it has to happen in phases right because of that risk right. and to mitigate that risk there needs to be ebbs and flows of where our training is right where we're prioritizing performance we're prioritizing health we're prioritizing recovery all of those things matter but like you said max if we're only pushing performance, 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 right? And we're never kind of addressing this variability or health, we're gonna run into some issues. But back to technique. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's take a, a very specific example. I, you know, I, I, obviously I'm on social media. If you wanna follow me, it's at maxlepage.dpt on Instagram. Um, and I see a lot of this stuff on social media sure. that, that gets put out there. Um, certain folks, like we said in the beginning, will be on one side of that pendulum mm-hmm. swinging and some will be on the other. You'll often see, you know, posts in the physical therapy world where you have two forms of movement examples. Yeah. One has eh. a, a big, yeah, a big red X. <laughs> big red X. The other one has a big green check mark. Yeah. So you, you are really dichotomizing yeah. good versus bad, like good versus evil here. And that I generally would not agree with right. in terms of you know that presentation. I think that gives a false narrative in terms of how you know how confident can we be that one thing is better than the other. I just don't think we can. But let's take a specific example. So I've been I've had this interaction with knee valgus on the squat. Sure, right? It's like hey, the person squats down really low, their knees cave in yep. on their way back up. That's really bad. And then we do some you know band walk side to side. And then retest the squat, and wow, yeah, their knees are in line with their third toe, just as God made them to be. And you get this giant dichotomization between 
initial and post and you know it's like now their knees are finally safe again to squat let's talk about that example specifically yeah, it's a good knee example valgus on the squat what are your thoughts is it bad is it going to cause injury if your knees i, I think about, i think about this as and i'm going to give credit to jared boyd on this one we know we talked about him a few times um but he uses this example of you know technique as tv volume where if you're sitting down and watching you know friends you know and, and you're you're in a you're in a you're in a room with some friends watching friends <laughs> there's, there's probably a lower limit of that volume that you would consider to be appropriate right or acceptable where you're like yeah i can i can hear the volume it's not really loud but like i guess i can manage this and there's probably an upper limit Right, where like, this is really loud. Like, are we really going to sit here and watch this TV with with it being this loud? I mean, I guess we could, right? And I think there's always going to be an, an acceptable technique for a given pattern. Now, for this individual who is completing a a, a body weight air squat with their knees coming in, um, no, I don't think that's necessarily bad or leads them to a risk of injury. Now. Hearing that story makes me think of like, are they just not understanding the task that you want them to be able to perform, right? And so if bringing awareness that quickly creates a change in their movement, I would say that it's probably a beneficial thing. And the reason I say that, especially if they have maybe goals of, you know, moving into a more performance or or fitness-based program, is that there needs to be some kind of model. Right, there needs to be some kind of transferable model when we're talking about like progressing into a, a strength and conditioning program or a fitness program or exercise. And you know, if this person's completing a body weight um, air squat and maybe they're experiencing some 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 knee valgus, and that can, they can manage that just through a verbal cue or a little bit of uh, sensory input. I would say that, that that's a beneficial thing. And then that should be carried over as they progress into a strength and conditioning model, as long as they have some awareness of it and they show that they can control it when cued. So again, when we, when we see knee valgus even at, at higher loads, we all know that those people are aware that their knees are caving in, right? I'm aware that my knees are caving in. It turns out that I'm also prepared to squat like that because I've been squatting like that for you know 20 years, but I'm also aware of it and am and actively just conscious of it, and that uh, that by itself might be enough for me to mitigate any like injury risk that I may experience. So one, I'm prepared for that technique. Two, I'm aware of it. You know, and and three, again, it's it's something that probably when from a performance standpoint, could potentially be a limiter in my in my technique, right? My knees coming together would be the thing that stops me from PRing a squat. So if I'm actually worried about performing, yeah, I'm going to address that, right? Because for me, that's what breaks down first. Yeah. No, I, I agree 100%. I think, like, like you said early on, if it's something that is very easily coachable, like it's this low hanging fruit. It's just control. It's it's in, in my opinion on this. It's like let's just kind of as a from a coach, right? Let's just control what we can control, especially if there's no knee pain present. Like yeah. that's just a very low level thing that we can easily clean up. 
am I going to say like, oh, you're now safe from having knee pain? No, not at all. But again, these are just a, it's a foundational, you know, expression of movement, a squat. Yeah, but e- and even in like that, the the ability to produce a movement that is reliable in right. terms of its consistency, right, right, does allow you to quantify load right much more easily than if you do move differently on each right. rep. You know, so it's like even if you do have someone with knee pain, a patellar tendinopathy. I kind of do have a, a sense that I want you to squat with a fairly consistent technique so that when we kind of go through this load progression, I have a better understanding of how your body's responding because from rep to rep and how we are loading is fairly similar each time. That's a great point, Max. And that's oftentimes why we will go from you know a a more multi-joint compound movement like the squat and we bring them on the knee extension because the knee extension gives us a very controlled pattern that's that's consistent and that doesn't have a ton of variation right and for that same reason when they do go to squat i kind of want it to mimic a little bit more of a controlled consistent pattern well i I think this is a great point so this is this would be you know technique the the importance of technique and actually getting the adaptations that you want to get when we're talking about uh increasing tolerance to tissues right in that if our goal is to increase tolerance to tissues right first of all you know we've talked about knee extensions love probably a knee extension machine right that'd be a great way to to isolate a specific tissue to create a very specific adaptation same thing that's going to happen with a, a back squat or front squat, right? If we are squatting in a different technique every time, for example, and we have a lot of variability in that technique and it's inconsistent, we actually don't really know that we're creating the the specific adaptations in that pattern or in those tissues over time. So, yeah. I mean, it's a, and especially with someone maybe with a lower training age in this example. Right. And so these are each, like, all of these are kind of reasons why if you were to follow me around throughout the day, you know, I may not be giving as many cues as I would have had I grown up, you know, and did this exact same career path 20 years ago, but I'm still cueing movement on a day-to-day basis, right? I'm still kind of coaching people through certain positions and certain movements. Of course, my narrative behind why I'm doing that, especially when I'm talking to the patient, is much different than, yeah. you know, what those narratives have been in the past and what might be a little more negative. I, I think that's the big big piece there 100 that's the big piece there's like we're we're not we're still coaching movement right making sure we we have again these points of performance right that we're making sure that that we're getting from our clients uh especially in the foundational movements and by foundational i mean probably like our squat our lunge our hinge our press push-up archetype right those big things our anterior core work um but what we're not saying is that if you don't move this way, you're going to be in pain, right? right. That's it. Yeah. And that there should be a degree of, of variability in that maybe, especially with someone who is hyper-focused on technique, we're saying, hey, maybe this should be a less cognitive-driven task, and I want you to just move. And so there's probably an, another spectrum of patients that are hyper-focused on technique and patients that are very unaware that there is even such a thing as technique, right? Right. And, and on that spectrum, you're going to be giving more or less coaching, more or less emphasis on cueing and coaching. 
For yeah. example, I saw you have a co- had a conversation with a patient who we've both worked with last night, and she was worried about being in the very, very specific rigid position where for her, she'd be more beneficial to be able to have variability and move through and not be so cognitive and sensory driven. Yeah. Where it's just like, let's just expose you to a variety of stressors and, and decrease your sensitization in those positions. Whereas, hey, if I move out of this position, my you know everything's gonna hurt. Yeah, and I think that in the modern understanding and the modern application of pain and things like that, like when when you are coaching someone, say, who does have knee valgus on the squat, I'll probably give up on those coaching cues sooner than, you know, other folks would because I recognize that. Well, especially at load, like at loads, you're saying like as they become apparent with loads? Yeah, as they become apparent, not necessarily that they're changing, but I mean like if. You know, I have a an Olympic lifter, a power lifter come to me. They have some training under their belt. It's not the technique modification is not this low hanging fruit that I can just cue them out of. Oh yeah, and I'm like, ah, because like, because again, you're going to be affecting their outputs probably dramatically. Right, and and so I'm going to you know maybe cue them a couple times. They don't move that way under load. I'm done yeah, with that. Cue. Agreed. I, I'm agreed. not going down that rabbit hole. I'm not changing things because I recognize that you know changing things doesn't give me all that much in this context. No. And this person probably needs to be better prepared for this pattern. And that's like what you were yeah. saying with you know this person. I'm probably just going to focus on building some you know better capacity and more load tolerance yeah. in the position that they specifically need to get into, while also having the conversation about you know. Hey, if, if performance is truly the goal, like we're already accepting some risk with that. Yeah. And w- as long as you're aware of that and I'm aware of that, and maybe you experience five injuries per 1,000 training hours, whereas if you didn't care about performance, you'd experience two injuries sure. per 1,000 training hours. And you're like, yep, I'm cool with those three extra injuries per 1,000 training hours. Yeah. Cool. I, that's, that's, that's the... Uh, you know, again, another another scenario there that I, I'm trying to take into consideration, you know, is how long have you been dealing with this, right? And how many other things have you tried? Okay, you've been to two other people and you've been dealing with this for eight months. Hey, maybe we need to be a little bit more aggressive with taking away some things, right? Taking away some provocative or sensitive positions at first, right? And really trying to get things under control, you know, and that's where, and that's where you might need to be a little bit more aggressive as a, as a, you know, a healthcare professional with really understanding, okay, what positions, what in their technique could be driving this irritation and making it so consistent. Yeah. And, and like when you see folks, especially with, you know, maybe more chronic pain that they've been dealing with something for a long time to your point, like sometimes if you think you're this movement guru who has all of the movement solutions and that that's so super related to their pain, you're going to potentially allow them to be training too much too long and not really letting things desensitize because you think oh all i have to do is change the way your glute meat activates on the squat and you'll be out of pain and so you're still squatting you're still making these changes but now maybe you are kind of progressively resensitizing an area that you could really just benefit from not squatting at all for two weeks and then progressing back into your squat and you would be mostly fine you know and you also you know in that thing where you're looking at specificity of training uh, you know, contraction type, you know, rate of force development, 
all of those types of things where you become very rigid in a certain style of training, you know, that's where you can also make, hey, maybe it's not even the technique, maybe it's just the tempo, maybe it's the maybe it's the volume, right? Maybe it's your training program. Yeah. You know, and all of those things oh, yeah. are and that, that's why that's why I always say like, you know, you having full range of motion means nothing to me. You having perfect tech, perfect technique. Again, I'm using air quotes. Means nothing to me if you don't have a well, if you don't have a you know appropriate training program. Yeah, and and I like to to bring up the example of like if you had to create a rehabilitation protocol, a 12 week protocol, and you had one of two pieces of information, either you could have subjective reports from the patient answers to your questions and you have to build the protocol exclusively off of that or you can see them move in the gym which would you want in order to build their program yeah seeing seeing them move is not going to tell me a whole lot yeah you you because we know that hey moving perfect does not tell me about anything about pain yeah and i think that when they tell me oh yeah, I lost my job and it changed four weeks ago. And at the same time, I started a new training block and ramped up my volume. And I started adding in uh, you know, three times a week of yeah. this and that. Those are the things that are probably gonna influence my perspective on how to move forward with the program and with the plan than seeing you move. And I think understanding the value of everything in the process and recognizing that, like you said, how much volume, the tempo, the the programming, the macro cycle of where you've been in the last year, your sleep, your nutrition, your injury history, your your perspective on pain, your attitudes towards these things and beliefs, all of these things are very valuable pieces of information. The movement, technique, the positions are a piece of the puzzle. Piece of the puzzle. But they are comparatively a smaller piece. They're a piece of the puzzle that, you know, I think, you know, you and I probably really enjoy talking about and, and, and coaching, but just also take into consideration of a lot of these other factors, right? These contextual factors that, you know, must be addressed. And I think as an athlete, you know, we're always, as an athlete, we're always wondering, hey, like, did I move a little bit differently on that rep and that's why I got hurt? Right or like what what rep was it like uh, you know what I did move a little bit differently or I did let my technique you know slip on on that on that rep and again it, that that can be a, a a dangerous place to go but understanding that there's a much 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 com- much more complex interaction between all of, all of these variables technique included that are contributing to you know potentially someone's pain experience right yeah and if we ha- if if anyone on the planet Earth could have nailed down specifically why injury occurs we would be preventing them by now Hmm. and we just can't be that sometimes you just can't like i have gone through periods of my training where i hey i've tweaked my back pretty aggressively on the fifth rep of a deadlift with 455. i've also tweaked my back pretty aggressively putting a plate back (laughs) standing up from the water fountain while drinking water I could easily in the deadlift scenario attribute that to technique or attribute that to this or that. But what the hell am I going to attribute it to for the water fountain scenario? Just, just soft, Max. And, yeah, probably. And so in that example, like 
if I can't explain the water fountain one, I probably can't really explain the deadlift one. And I don't want to make a connection with the deadlift that shouldn't be there and then instill fear and instill a hesitancy to perform that yeah. movement and to load it. Because the reality is I can very much get injured drinking water. I'm going to end it with this with this note. I think that as a profession, we're really good at justifying. We're really good at creating these stories, right, and these narratives um, that superficially sound really good, mm-hmm. like are really believable. And depending on who is presenting that story, it can be even more believable. And, you know, when we start looking at the evidence and having these conversations that maybe are a little bit more messy, um, I can understand why, you know, the general public has a hard time understanding and even people in our profession have a hard time understanding this. But I think it's our job to continue to try and get and, 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 and simplify these complex interactions between variables, these complex conversations around pain and around technique and around performance and when it matters, when maybe it doesn't matter so much, providing case studies, providing individual examples so that you know our listeners and you know athletes, students, practitioners – have a better understanding of how to you know move forward and, and give the best quality of care to their to their patients. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Nick, if people want to find you, where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm over on uh, Instagram at nickparagini.dpt uh, on YouTube at Paragini Fitness. Perfect. Uh, for myself, you can follow me at maxlepage.dpt on Instagram. Um, you can always email me at max at precisionperformancept.com or just get in touch with me through Precision. Uh, you can find us fairly easily on on the internet do it uh again like always we hope everyone's staying safe staying healthy we appreciate you listening we'll talk to you guys in the next one see you guys thank you for listening to the training room talk podcast we hope today's discussion was helpful in illuminating some of the complexities behind pain and rehab if you don't know where to go from here please reach out to us with questions we have mentorship options for clinicians and students and programming options for you to elevate your own fitness. We look forward to speaking with you, and again, hope you enjoyed today's discussion.